0: Prepare your ears, humans. Happy, Sad, Confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, five years after Mad Max Fury Road, director George Miller reflects on his masterpiece. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Yes, it's true. My obsession. The movie that I can't stop talking about five years later. I'm sorry, I'm going to be talking about it till the day I die. The great Mad Max Fury Road and the even greater filmmaker behind it, George Miller, is the subject today on today's Happy, Sad, Confused. I've said this before. Every, I feel like every episode of Happy, Sad, Confused, I'm out there talking about Michael Shannon or Fury Road. Wait, what if Michael Shannon is in a Mad Max film one day? Oh my God, my brain might melt. Anyway, let's not talk about that. That's too much to handle. No, but you know I'm obsessed with this movie. It's, it's, it's a it's a classic. It is It redefined what action movies could be. I've seen it more than any other movie in the last five years, and this was just such a treat. I talked to George five years ago on the podcast. You can go back into the archives and listen to that. He was fantastic then. He's uh, just an eccentric, odd, brilliant filmmaker who makes art. He makes, and, and, and just what eclectic art he's made. I mean, look at look at his IMDb. Look at his filmography. You will not find somebody with a more diverse, fascinating range of films. Happy Feet and, and Mad Max and, and Babe and Witches of Eastwick and Lorenzo's Oil. He's just all over the place in the best possible way. Well, five years after the fact, I... I, I I reached out to George and his team, and he was willing to chat with me to reflect on this mad masterpiece that is Fury Road all these years later, and to talk about what went into it, and and the difficulties in making it from a logistical standpoint, from casting challenges. Um, This was not an easy movie to make, and if you see the movie, that will not surprise you. Um, So this is really... This is for the fans of filmmaking, the fans of Fury Road out there, because this really almost acts as a masterclass for any aspiring filmmaker, any just film fan that wants to dive deep into what it, what it, what it means to make something as challenging as Fury Road in every respect. So um, this was fantastic to do. This was a true delight. This was the first thing I taped after my dad sadly passed away, and in some ways it was very difficult and challenging in that way, but it was also great to kind of get back and talk about something that I love so much, um, filmmaking and in particular uh, a film that I, I just revere so much and a filmmaker that I respect so much. Um, this was also done, I should say, the video form of this, you can watch on YouTube. I did this for Metaverse, which is the folks that put on your Comic Con and many of your favorite conventions out there. Um, I've done a lot with them and they reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to host some special kind of panels for this first virtual con that they were putting together. Well, I did, and this was one of the events that we put together, that I put together, and I'm happy to say that we're going to hopefully do more. New York Comic Con is obviously not going to happen in the traditional way this October, but they are going to do another metaverse, and there are some really exciting plans afoot, and I'm trying to put some, some cool stuff together, and hopefully that pans out, and hopefully you guys will, will hear more of it soon. Um, but in the meantime, if you want to watch my my uh, my delicious face and George Miller's delicious face all the way from Sydney, Australia, uh, you can watch this conversation on YouTube on New York Comic Con's YouTube page, which I believe is just youtube.com slash NYCC. So this conversation is there for you free, along with dozens of other great panels and discussions that they put together. So that's available to you too. Um, other things to mention, I want to plug a friend of mine's uh, great new podcast that I've been enjoying lately. And if you're a fan of movie and industry news, it's a really super smart digest, a daily digest called the Wake Up, um, and you can subscribe to it on any podcast platform. It's usually between five and ten minutes. It's like it's it's really short, and it gives you all the information that you need at the start of every day about sort of what's going on in media. Um, and it's a uh, you know I think it's a it's a really well done, smart. It's got a, it's got a fun little, um, you know, uh, uh, snark. Maybe too, too strong a word, but, but, but a, a good a viewpoint, I'll say, um, on the industry. And uh, if you're looking for just like a quick, easy to digest, um, roundup of what's what's been happening in the last day in the industry and in movie and TV and, and, and media, uh, check out the Wake Up on your podcast platforms. Other things to mention in the Josh Horowitz universe. Um, Comedy Central's uh, Stir Crazy Show, my Stir Crazy Talk Show, continues with a new episode this week with the great Joe Coy. He's one of the biggest stand up comedians on the planet. Um, I thank, frankly, I actually wasn't that familiar with Joe before taping this, but now I'm in love with Joe. He's smart and funny and interesting and cool, and this was a really fun chat. So go to Comedy Central's YouTube page or Facebook page and check out my new conversation with the very funny Joe Coy. Um, for MTV, I got a chance to talk to Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter, guys. You know what this is about. The third Bill & Ted movie. Bill & Ted, Face the Music, is out this Friday on VOD. It's in theaters if you're able to see it in the theater where you are. And if you're a Bill & Ted fan, guys, this, this worked for me. I was so happy. I just had a smile on my face for 90 minutes watching this movie. And I had a smile on my face talking to Keanu and Alex after all these years. If you know my work, if you followed me, you know I'm obsessed. Maybe not as much as with uh, with Fury Road, but pretty close with Bill and Ted. And uh, I've been talking to these guys for over a decade about this third Bill and Ted movie and when's it gonna come and what's the problem, and what's the issue. So this was like a kind of a cathartic end of the road discussion about about the. Uh, the crazy journey that it was, that it took to get to Bill & Ted Face the Music. So that was a lot of fun to do, and I hope you guys enjoy it. That, um, I'll tweet out when it's out. It's going to be out in, in, a, in a matter of days if it's not up already by the time you listen to this. Um, so yeah, so a lot, a lot of fun stuff out there. I'm happy to say, podcast continuing, MTV Conversations continuing, uh, Stir Crazy continues. I am just... I'm just a content machine. What can I say? (laughs) I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation with George Miller. Um, As always, remember to review, rate, and subscribe to Happy, Sad, Confused. Oh, one other plug. One do-gooder plug. You guys have been so nice since my dad's passing, sending me nice notes. If you're feeling charitable go put a donation into the Michael J. Fox Foundation. It's a great cause. They're trying to end uh, Parkinson's as we know it and find the cure and, and working on treatments, et cetera, And they do such amazing work. Um, so yeah, if you have a few bucks that you wanna spread to a good cause, Michael J. Fox Foundation, do it up. Um, anyway, onto the, the main event. Here's my conversation with the great George Miller. By the way, there's a little preamble when I talk. It's for the YouTube version of this. Don't, don't be confused. It's gonna be okay. Here's me and George. Hey guys, welcome to a very special event, a co-production of my podcast, Happy Second Confused and the Metaverse. Now, usually on my podcast, we talk about other guests' comfort movies, but today we're talking about one of mine, the brilliant and audacious Mad Max Fury Road. I am beyond thrilled to welcome back to Happy Second Confused for this fifth anniversary retrospective all the way from Sydney, Australia, The genius that is the writer and director George Miller. Hi, George.
1: Hi there. Wow, thank you. (laughs) Um, you
0: I'm thrilled to catch up with you, even in these crazy times via Zoom. Um, You know, I I remember. You know, we're going to revel in all things Mad Max: Fury Road today. The last time I spoke to you was when the film was coming out, and one of the things you actually said to me in that conversation was, "You can really measure a film by how long it follows you out of the theater." Um, Well, mission accomplished, (laughs) I would say, because (laughs) as much as it was revered at the time, Fury Road is now, I feel like, even more revered and and acknowledged as as just a stone-cold classic. I I just was wondering if we could start there. Like, how does it feel that five years in, the estimation of this film has only increased?
1: Well, obviously, it's very gratifying. You don't know what's going to happen to a film. You put all you know into the process. I mean, everything you know. At the end of the film, you're pretty spent, and you think, and you're never sure. There's always uncertainty. And this film, in particular, until it was all together in a very mature state, literally every sound effect, every every frame was basically significant in the overall rhythm of the piece. So until it gets in front of audiences, and until 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 it has a chance to marinate, as it were, in in, in, in people's minds. Um, it's ultimately the audiences that tell you what your film is. And I'm very, very thankful that we're still talking about it because, uh, because the default position is usually the opposite. People forget yeah. it not
0: too long after they've left the cinema, or in these days, you know, turned off their television. I mean, I have to say, in, in, uh, this is not hyperbole to say, the filmmakers that I've talked to in the f- five years since, there's no movie that's come up more, that they bring up more as, and the adjectives they use, the words they use to describe the film are, you know, it seemed impossible. It's a miracle. How did how did that how did that film happen? I, Steven Soderbergh had this amazing quote where he said, I don't understand how they're not still shooting that film. I don't understand how hundreds of people aren't dead. <laughs> and this is Steven Soderbergh, who knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> so that, that's, a, that's a significant thing to say. So I, I guess my my, my my silly but serious question is: Was this movie as difficult as it looks to make? Oh yes.
1: Um, look, every movie, even a small movie, even a bad movie, even a you know a, a vis- big visual effects movie, it, they're always difficult, and they should be difficult. Otherwise, there's no effort. They're never casual, uh, and 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 so yes, it. it it's, uh, it's a little, you know, I, I was bewildered when I first made my first feature. I thought I wasn't cut out to make movies because it was so unpredictable. The best laid plans all went wrong. And it wasn't until I spoke to Peter Weir, actually, an uh, Australian director, a great Australian director, who had done already two features. And he said to me, George, um, don't you realize it's always like that? And It wasn't long after the Vietnam War. He says, "Think about it. Think about it as if you're going into patrol. You're on patrol in the in the jungle, and you've got your platoon, and you've got to get through your mission. And you won't know where the snipers are. You won't know where the where the landmines are. You don't know where who's going to get sick from some disease or whatever. Uh, you, none of this is predictable. And, and, but you've got to be flexible enough and agile enough." to get through and complete the mission. And i th- and
0: that really, that stayed with me all these years, and it yeah. was particularly necessary in this case. Well, I was gonna say, and the cruelty is, you would think after 40 plus years of directing films, like it gets easier, but um, it doesn't necessarily, especially when you're, you're trying to pull something as audacious as this off.
1: Yes, I think that's the point. If, if, if it's easy, you're doing, you're repeating what you've yep. done before. And, and, you know, I think we tend to forget, uh, not only do we change the individual storytellers change but the audiences change and the technology changes yes so if you kind of get stuck in doing what's been seen many times before you're basically not really trying hard enough I believe and and at least we tried with this film and I you know I'm genuinely thankful it it, it um, it seems to have a resonance, which is which, which is ultimately what gives you the most uh, satisfaction. Uh, not to the point of hubris, I, I, I must say, because because you start on your next film, right. And you and you say to yourself, "Oh my
0: God, uh, you know, I know nothing," and and then that's a really good way to start, particularly if it's a different film. I want to go back to the beginning of the development of this film, and I actually asked for a a few prominent filmmakers to send in some questions, and they were they were eager to ask you some questions. So here's one from uh, a woman who actually just collaborated with Charlize on on a great film called The Old Guard, Gina Prince Bythewood. Oh Um, yeah, she's a a big fan of yours, and she wanted to know what. what Well, it it it, uh, it goes
1: both ways. I've just seen, I've just watched it on Netflix, I think it is,
0: and Yeah. uh, yeah. It's great to see. Um her question for you is what was the first image you saw in your head that fed your vision of this film?
1: Well, it's interesting. It was it it wasn't quite an, a, an image. I, I I realized after a time making films, I tend to think in kind of scenes uh, or potential scenes. The images um the images are there, but they're very vague in the mist. But I remember the first moment it popped in my head. It was the late 90s. I remember I was in Los Angeles. I can't remember what I was doing, but I was crossing a, a, a traffic light. I was walking, pedestrian, pedestrian crossing. And I got halfway across the pedestrian crossing, and this idea came to me, which was, um, which was, what would happen. If there was a film which was entirely on the move, and there were a number of women escaping some tyrant, some some uh, some tyrant, and it, it and, and, and that little Geiger counter that says oh there's interesting drama there, uh, you you uh, it, it's it's it sort of sparked there, and I remember very distinctly. Getting to the other side of the road and thinking, no way, I'm not going to do another Mad movie. <laughs> then um, as what in terms of what happens, I remember flying back about two weeks across the Pacific through the night, back from Los Angeles to Sydney, Australia, where I live. And I woke up in you know from some sleep and the movie started to play in my head. That's when the images came. And I got i was surprised how far I got through into the movie, and um, I and there and, and and I'm not saying that was a complete movie, but that's when I start to see images. I tend to see images more yep. than I remember words. Uh, I, I, you know, it, 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 so then it's then it starts and all it all works together. But I ne- never forget my first walking across uh, that 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 you call it
0: zebra crossings, you know, with yep. the yeah, yeah. It, it was one of those. And, fi- and 15 plus short years later and 3,500 storyboards later. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yes. And, uh, I want to ask you about casting because you had a challenge in this film. Um, at a certain point, you decided this was not the tale of an older Max. This was a tale of a younger Max. And you had to switch uh, out of using the great Mel Gibson in this iconic role. Um, we spoke once, and you've been candid. You talked about Heath Ledger at one point. Was was Heath actually cast? and, and what do you think he would have done with Max? That would have been different.
1: Well, sadly, we'll never know. But uh, but but, but um, he wasn't cast. But every time he would come to Australia to visit his family, he would call in and we'd talk. And and um, uh, and he um, and I always had it had it in mind. Always had him in mind. Uh, look, he look. I think. Mel, when he, when I first met him, Heath, when I got to know him a little bit, and and uh, and and Tom, all have in common the quality—a kind of, it's a cliche, but a kind of uh, animal magnetism—and I literally mean animal magnetism. I, uh, when I worked on the on the babe movies with uh, with animals, and I got to know the animal trainers, I mean to walk up to a cage with a tiger or a big grizzly bear a, 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 and, uh, and in some cases, where they allow you in, to, uh, in there. There's this wonderful quality, wonderful thing that happens where you want to pack them and roll around with them and whatever. On the other hand, you, you're very aware of some inner mystery that goes on. On the one hand, they're highly accessible as people. I'm talking about three guys. And, and on the other hand there's a, they're a mystery you'll never get to never get to know them. and I think that's a, that's one of the essences of charisma and and, and uh, the paradox of that and and they all had it and you know I guess they were they, they were the Venn diagram of who they were as people and the character would have were pretty would overlap to a fairly high degree
0: and then in terms of casting Furiosa, I mean, this film, as we'll get to, I mean, you, you were greenlit a couple times, and I think early, uh, as early as around 2001, you were going to go into production on this film. Was it always, I mean, Charlie, that's a different age for Furiosa. Was Charlie's yeah. always your Furiosa? Well, she, she wasn't in the first case, because way back in 2001, I remember
1: we asked which are, you know, which was in the script, and the answer is... Uh, the yes came back from her agent oh she's not interested years later when we asked her again asked her again she you know she did read the script and i mentioned to her did you remember getting the script way back when you know almost a decade before and she said no i never i never ever uh, no, never heard of the film back then so who knows what happens between agent and clients. but she certainly she certainly was the first character that came into mind as we were reading it. Uh, initially, we were cast. We were, Mel was cast. Uh, we, we, things changed uh, uh, the, the, you know, in, both in terms of Mel's public persona with all these issues and stuff. And time went on. I'd made two animations in the meantime. The film kept on falling away, it kept on rising somehow and adventure was made and by then it was, I kept on thinking it wasn't like The Unforgiven about an old warrior. It, it, right. it, 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 you know. So so Tom was the guy who walked through the door and had that same quality.
0: Was, so. was it always envisioned, I mean it's kind of stealthily, or not so stealthily, Furiosa's film. Max's is, is obviously integral to the story, but it is really Furiosa's arc that we really latch on the most. Was it always conceived that way, that Furiosa would be your kind of central road warrior, as it were? Well, it, it, it
1: emerged that way, but I don't think, I don't necessarily think it was conceived that way. I, uh, I Basically, you formulate the story, and you let it play out, and you go through, I'm, I'm not talking about the, the process of making the film, I'm talking about the process of evolving the film, writing, and so on. And characters emerge. Um, it was very, very clear that that she had to be a woman. Uh, if there are five wives being, being basically stolen or taken away from the male principle, as it were, the, you know, the guy on top of the dominance hierarchy, and they're trying to escape that. Uh, if it was a male warrior, uh, Stealing—that's a completely different story. Yep. So it had to be a female, and she had to be somebody who wasn't just uh, a, a female impersonating a warrior. She had to be a warrior without any regard to whatever her, pre, you know, her, her female qualities. And, and 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 that's what happened. And and Charlize was equal to the task. And I guess she—you know—she really. She really r- took to the role, as difficult as it, it was, and she was resolute. She said, I don't, want to, I don't want to shoot a gun like I'm a woman who's just learned to shoot a gun. I don't want to hit somebody like I'm a woman and in a highly choreographed piece of work. All, all, all the fight scenes and so on were highly choreographed, but she didn't, didn't want to do it as if by numbers. And right. She was determined to do it.
0: You know, some productions are, are, are talked in retrospect as you know easy and harmonious um, from the start. You know, this candidly wasn't that. This was a long shoot, an arduous shoot. This went on for a while. You shot in Namibia after some false starts. Um, and I talked to a lot of your actors, and they, you know, in retrospect, they're candid. They they say at the time, some of them didn't know what was in your head at the time. They say it was it was tough for us to imagine what what was going to be on the screen. Did you feel that at the time? Did you worry that you were losing the confidence of your actors that something was getting lost in translation?
1: Oh, yes, I did. I I, I, I I, mean, the big problem of the film, and this is not to excuse it, it was it was definitely an atypical movie. There was no sort of, you could rehearse. You could rehearse the physical stuff, and you had to rehearse it. But in terms of the performances, in terms of what was happening with the actors, uh, you couldn't really do that in any form, in any continuity. I mean, there's there were there there were like 2,800 cuts in the movie in 114 minutes. Right. Uh, so I think the the, the math says that it's about 2.9 seconds, two seconds nine frames uh, uh, per uh, average shot. So it's very hard and. and and action in particular, or, or, or movies that move fast, you can't do sort of the classic master so you can feel the role. Right. All the actor could do was present their character and respond to the moment, but I mean, really understand the character and get immersed in their character. And that's, um, that's quite different approach. approach uh, and we're out there in that isolated place. Yep. With, 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 uh, we started off in winter and we ended up close to summer. And it was cold in the mornings, even though it was meant to be. It was meant to be, uh, yeah. you know, uh, hot. Uh, but again, eventually it got hot. There was dust everywhere, and it. I think, I, I think it was uncomfortable for all of us. But also, it seeped into in, into the movie. It wasn't a, a visual effects movie. But yes, um, it was hard. Yeah, it was probably my fault as a director. I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't express what it was going to be like, uh, 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 you know, in, in the final uh, in, in in the final cut and the, when everything was together. I couldn't sort of say this is what it's going to feel like. I could talk about the characters. I could talk about where they were. So
0: um, it's it's me to hear you say that because if anything, there was a visual bible like no other film has ever had one for this film. This film, for those that don't know. I don't know if you ever had a conventional screenplay, but you had 3,500 storyboards that essentially you gave to the production and the actors. So, in a way, to me, it's like that. There's your movie. Read the story. <laughs> like you can, you can literally visualize it. Um, but I guess it's different to be on set and to be in the moment. Well, there were
1: there was. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, 3,500, 3,800, 3, a whole room full of storyboards. But be, because after we laid down on paper a kind of a, a, a pretty detailed outline of what the story would be, we basically rendered it as a, as a story storyboards. Because right. that's really the only way you can convey the causality between one shot and next, the framing, and what it's just much simpler, you know, the old the picture. It's worth a thousand words and definitely applies to a highly visual film like this. And um, so storyboards were there, but but there was a script. Uh, It was, uh, otherwise we couldn't have gone to a studio. I mean, people can't read storyboards. They're not like graphic novels. They have a different structure. They have much more detail. And they're more production, you know, aid more than they are, uh, uh, they don't convey the experience of it, but we try to do that in in the screenplay. Uh, again, descriptive, sometimes using some pictures when it just saved a lot of detailed description. But again, there are very few words spoken, yeah. uh, and so essentially it was a silent movie with a lot of noise but no dialogue, or not much dialogue.
0: I, I hope this doesn't feel like we're, 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 rev- we're, we're talking so much about the problems because I think that that's one of the inspiring things about the film, is that even a film that, that came out as perfectly in many ways as this one did, had to go through these tough journeys to get to the, the finish line. I mean, for, for instance, I mean, I'm curious, like, did you have a low point on the film where you were like, this is getting away from me? Did you have a day where you were like, I, I've lost control of this movie?
1: Look, I, I definitely had those days, but I learned. Uh, a little bit like that, uh, being on the you know in platoon in the jungle in Vietnam or wherever, right. uh, that must happen all the time. Yep. Uh, I I knew, as I said earlier, my very first film was the film where I not only felt I lost control when I when the film ultimately became a surprise success. I just I was just I just felt I wasn't cut out to make movies, and until someone. Said, "Hey, it's the same. This is the way it is. <laughs> this is it." And I've learned yeah. that um, I've learned that uh, the hard way, really. That if you if you surrender to that feeling, if that that uh, you you basically uh, are going to sort of lose the attention. Now, you earn the right to keep going by the work and your preparation. Right. Uh, it, it, I, I would feel completely uh, lot, uh, that I've lost control if it wasn't so prepared. If I didn't have an idea of the whole, how each little piece of the mosaic was going to fit fit into the whole. So you have to rely on that. Plus, I plus I knew that I had really, really great people. Uh, I, you know, uh, Doug Mitchell, the producer, who would jump in and. And fix any problem that he saw, and tried to sort of protect the film from that. And there were a lot of those things happening. Uh, Guy Norris, uh, who, who was the stunt coordinator and second unit director, really understood what we're doing, every detail of what we're doing. PJ Vertner, AD, and and uh, you know, a, a amazing man who who. Who really? I'm, I'm giving. I'm giving a whole list of people, but uh, but PJ, who was also one of the producers, knew the production really well. Colin Gibson, you know, the production designer, uh, all the water makeup people, everybody knew what they were doing. It wasn't. It wasn't as though it was out there. We were improvising at all. We were adjusting uh, as we were going, and you have. You always have to do that. You have to. Have to do that. So that's what, what you know. That, those feelings that you get, and when I, the more I talk to directors, I, I, a little story. I had a friend who was directing their first film, a very good director, and he said, "Can you got any get, got any tips?" And I said, "I said I've only got two. Always play something a little faster than you think it should be. Simply, and that's from Frank Capra way back, because." It, because there's a lot of adrenaline on the set, particularly, and but but in the cinema you're watching in repose, you're sitting back and watching the movie, so it's a different. So so things will seem a little faster, perhaps, to you than it might be in the cinema. And and I said my other my other my other tip is that the day will come on your movie that you that it will not make any sense to you. You'll think you're completely crazy, and when you finish the film which turned out to be very good. I, he said, George, you remember what you told me about the day will come when I feel, I feel a bit crazy? What you didn't tell me is, is that it would happen on every day. <laughs> so, and, and it's true in a way. And I think it's part of the, the process. If you're prepared, if you're prepared, I think uh, that allows you to adjust and to have, respond very intuitively to the moment. It's exactly like sport. A basketball player has drilled, they've got the innate talent, they drill, they drill, the team works together, but in the moment of performance, it's not a rehearsed thing. They, they have to just almost reflexively respond to the moment. Right. And that's,
0: that's, that's when you get people doing
1: you know, amazing um, things.
0: My next question for you comes from uh, the great Ryan Johnson, a great writer and filmmaker. Oh, gee, who is? They're wonderful people here. Thank you for this. Um, So Ryan said to me, uh, on his behalf, he wanted to ask uh, you, I'd be curious specifically in the action set pieces, how much does Mr. Miller shoot specifically for a preconceived edit versus how much does he play with the footage in the edit room?
1: You have to do both. Um, You... You, you have to preconceive it. Uh, look, the film language... Uh, I, I, I won't go into too long an answer, but, but the, the, the film language was basically decided... I'm a big fan. I don't know if you know of the book, The Parade's Gone By by Kevin Brown. He wrote it in the 60s. He said something very... His basic idea was something, something very significant. This new film language, which is basically we learned, it's an acquired language, it was determined pre-sound in the silent era, and, and if you look at the syntax of those movies, particularly Buster Keaton and, and, and Harold Lloyd and those sort of silent movies, were, where the cameras were agile, where they were able to do a, a lot of things, they, did, they, didn't shoot. they didn't shoot in a, in a way that, that they just shot wide masters. I mean, Chaplin shot wide masters and performed, all, because was, they were all from the theatre initially, but they didn't understand, they didn't necessarily, uh, well, what I'm trying to say is, to do a film properly in the silent area, you had to have a way of connecting one shot to the, to the next. And you can't do an action movie unless you know what, what's happening. The feeling, the onrush of action cannot be done. in. It, it cannot be rehearsed like a one shot scene. Right. It, it can be, but it doesn't give you the intensity of what you can do when you can sort of play with the rhythms. So, yes, you have to preconceive uh, the, the, the shots, but again, you have to adjust them. When you get into the editing room, you confront it with the, 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 the notion that you fail most of the time and and you need an editor who is has not only the technical skill, but the artistic skill, to able to 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 make something really work and find its rhythms, um, it's uh, I, and I was very lucky to have my partner Margaret Cecil come there because she 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 can she she is one of those editors who can see things very very clear, see what the end result of, of of potential readjustment of shots can be, uh, uh, and, and and quite often. You know, I thought I th- I thought I was pretty good, with, but uh, pretty good at that. But uh, but she was the one who was able to say, "Hey, George, you don't need this, and we can do this and this and this." And I'd say, "Oh, I, I can't see that." But please go ahead. I go away, and there it was.
0: So so it's it, 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 it's, it's sorry, uh, it's it's both those processes. I was going to say for the edit. I'm curious because one of the curious things that I think people were shocked by is your manipulation of frame rates in the film sometimes just like speeding up and slowing down the action um which was very innovative and i hadn't seen you know some people compared it to like watching a a looney tunes cartoon at times or something um was that something that you again you found with margaret in the edit room or was that something always in mind like we're going to play with frame rates and play with speed that was very much in the
1: edit. the big difference as i said earlier not only do we change as audiences uh, uh, and, and cinema's always evolving and much more rapidly than we think. And one of the main things is, you know, not long ago, um, let's say two decades ago, basically the only way you could manipulate a film or work a film was the cut of celluloids, you know, between the, you know, the beginning and the end of a particular shot. Now the plasticity is inside the frame. Right. You can adjust the frame if you're shooting a higher resolution. We did a lot of vignettes. We did a lot of corrections. We did a lot of sharpening. Because eye trace is really, really important to make something play smoothly. And and uh, and that's well, that was all something that was done uh, in post. Uh, Margaret did a lot of that. We did a lot of it in DI. And you can't preconceive, right. preconceive that you can't you can't you know um, at the time uh I, well i was going to go on we were, we were going to shoot in, in native 3d i remember yes and uh, and i realized it was impossible uh to do it uh, for, for a film like this number one we would have only had three cameras and we would have lost them very early to dust or damage we didn't lose any major cameras but we had a lot of Small cameras that we buy at the local airport in Namibia for, for about you know for about fifteen hundred US dollars and and we put them in jeopardy and we lost I don't think two or three and, and 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 but but if you did that without key our cameras here's the basic problem with shooting in three D you cannot predict where the eye will be looking the variable is in and out of the screen right. you wouldn't you couldn't predict where that would be, you, you, you try to predict it, but with fast cutting you couldn't and I'm so glad that we actually decided it was one of the most significant decisions we we, we made was to do the, the, the 3D post. Um, but anyway, look, to answer Riyadh's question, uh, you have to, I believe you have to uh, preconceive the action or, or attempt to understand where the cutting would be because of the causality of one the you've got to try. Uh, and I, I, I looking at his films, I, I believe he does
0: that. I'm curious because, you know, we, you're kind of alluding to this, how technology evolves and you adapt to the technology and you use the new tools at your disposal at the time. For instance, when I look back at the first three Mad Max films, while they have obviously so much in common with Fury Road, aesthetically, there's a lot different. It, it, it just, it feels different in many ways. When you look back at the Like, would you want another crack at the first three Mad Max films using the tech today? Could you imagine approaching those three films in a much different way? Um, Everything had changed. I mean, uh, I can give you so
1: many examples, but the the principal one was that things could be, you could do things much more safely. You could actually put, you know, there's a moment there in the movie where uh, Max is hanging upside down between the wheels of the of the war rig, of the, 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 the prime move of the war rig, and, and Furiosa is, is, is hooked, he's is, hooked, is hanging upside down and holding him. Now, that was Tom Hardy hanging upside down. It wasn't his wonderful stuff double. It was him hanging upside down. He had very, very strong and thick cables and fail-safe cables and whatever. And, uh and a very secure rig and the and they were so easy to erase i mean that was that was just that is a big thing and then yeah. everyone could be harnessed they could be on top of the vehicle going at speed and in other very simple ways I remember i used to watch um action movies uh really good action movies like bullets and and you know I always love uh, watch up Doc the Mdanovich movie. And if you look at those movies, you you um, you can see how many takes they did because you'd see the skid marks, several skid marks. If a car did a, a, a kind of a wheelie on, on the road, you could see how many takes they did. They always used to look at the road. Now, you're shooting many vehicles in the desert and you can erase all the previous tracks. Simple things like that. Most important of all was the agility of the camera. Right. and you can put a camera wherever you like, and, and that adds to camera safety. And then probably the, the, the big thing is that you, you have 45 minutes, you have a chip inside the camera, that you can run the camera for 45 minutes. Now, when you have, just for instance, you have a big explosion. Uh, this is what used to happen. You'd have the biggest magazine you, you you could get. You'd have to run it, I don't know, 96 frames a second. So you're churning up that magazine. You have to have someone turn on the camera. You have to have someone get that person who turns the camera on and get them out of there, out of your shot and safe before you call action. Now you're sweating because you think, oh, we're about to get to the big explosion, but the film's going to run out. And, and so that's uh, that
0: you don't worry about you, lots and lots of those things, and, and, and uh, so that made a, that made a big difference. Yeah, um, I have a couple more questions from some filmmakers that want to get in. Some we've covered in some ways, but I want to honor their questions because they were kind enough to send them in. Um, this is from the great Patty Jenkins, director of Monster and Wonder Woman, of course. Um, she says, I'm a huge admirer of the movie and your work, George. My question is, what were your inspirations for the stunning visual style of the action sequences in Fury Road? It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. How did you go about building the language for the action? Uh, gee, Penny. Um, um,
1: <laughs> Bill, look. Um, look, I, I I remember in the past, there were filmmakers who who I admired, who said, really, there's only one perfect place for the camera at any given moment.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And when I got into animation, like with Happy Feet, the thing I discovered was that you could take, I didn't discover it, it was a realisation, it wasn't, but you could take exactly the same performance, voice performance, you know, body, animation, performance, uh, lighting, and everything. And by just adjusting the camera and cutting pattern, you can change the perception of the scene. And and I learned that, and I, it sort of got me really worried because there is only one perfect place for the camera. It's like hitting a, a note, the sweet spot on the note. Somehow, if you listen to an orchestra playing, a really trained ear can hear where the notes are off. I can't. But 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 you know I've certainly known people who can I think it's the same thing yeah so you have to think basically you have to it's it, it, it play between the cer- cerebral and the intuitive and you've got to feel out not only where that that's the perfect place for a camera uh, but you've got to understand how that how we get to the next shot. it's usually story driven, but it's also in you know, a formal way compositional and, and, and so on. So I remember thinking of Fury Right. I think that was what made me storyboard the movie because I thought I'm not going to go on to set and work out, uh, you know, work out on the spot how things should go, or I'm not going to sit there and talk to the second unit director and, and say, what do you think there on the day? And because you could take the same stunt. And if you don't have the camera in the right place and you and, and you don't really think about it, uh, it could be very mediocre. And, and, the, and the proof often is when you see those making of movies, where you, you see a camera there, it, you know, so, so, some crew is being put there and basically asked to step step back because they don't, they don't want them, you know, the, the publicity crew say, or the people making the documentary, they, they can't be there. They can't have, find the sweet spot for the camera. And the stunt, or particularly a fight scene, you see the mat, or you see, you you know, the mat that the actors fall on, you see all of that. And it's not as dynamic as when you actually see it in the cinema, when it's fully formed. So I think, um, yeah, I think you really, you you, you really have to, I I think the the, the question is a, a simple, I mean, it's amazing. Patty and, and the other directors you're talking about, I see it in their work anyway. And um, <laughs> if, if it's, you know, I'm glad to be able to, to, to re- reinforce that. Um,
0: yeah. Another question from another great filmmaker. This is also about the language. I'm not sure if he's talking about the visual language again or maybe the literal language, but let's, let's tackle it. This is from M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, Of course, uh, the writer-director of success with so many great films. You you know all these directors. I I have the privilege of getting to talk to these guys, so I hit them up. They were eager to talk to you, sir, um, through using me as a vessel. Um, There are, he says, there are the rarest of films that have mastered their language to such an extent that they make us fluent when watching right away. As the storyteller, what would Mr. Miller credit the main reasons for this mastery of language on Fury Road? Now I, I'm not sure Knight's not, nice particular angle, but the what, one I'm curious about, if you'll indulge me, is is the, is the is the literal language in the film that you like mediocre witness me all the all the language that that kind of like whizzes by us that we absorb and feels authentic and if we don't understand it at first by the end of the film it all makes perfect sense. Um, I, I'd be curious to hear a little bit about how you create such a cohesive language in a film. Well, well, putting putting
1: the film language, the actual structure of shots and so on aside, um, you, you know, to make a film where you have at least a thousand people working on the film and some very, very great talents, um, but you have to make them, you have to find a way to make them cohesive. Um, and For instance, we had, you know, I'm I'm really glad because they all won Academy Awards. We had Colin Gibson, the production designer, and his team. We had Jenny Bevan, the wardrobe uh, designer, or costume designer, and we had Leslie Van Walt. Now, Leslie did all the makeup and so on. Now, she, they all basically very busy departments had a massive amount of work to do. And they have to, their work has to be unified by some very clear strategies that you, that you come up with. Um, And that's probably one of the most important jobs of the director is you're trying to harness all these different creativities. Um, And, and so basically, you know, for, for, and it takes a while sometimes to find this, basically for Fury Road, it, it, we, we basically said, "Look, uh, the world this post-punk world. We had to we we had to decide that everything was made from found objects, repurposed, and that was one rule. The second rule, well, it's not rules; they're tools. I, I don't <laughs> like the term rules. Uh, the, the, the The second notion was that." just because it's the wasteland, it doesn't mean that people don't make beautiful things. Um, that that was very important because you look at human behavior and we see that no matter how impoverished we are or how reduced we are in, in resources, even early man made beautiful things. Uh, and often it's more important when you've got very little. To, 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 to. So there's always the aesthetic. And the, the third one and the less important was that everything had to have more than one purpose. So this applied to the language as well. It, the, the language, as you know, there's always slippage in language, there's always drift in the way that language evolves in every language. And, 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 and so the language had, had to be found objects repurposed. So the, they, the war boys, and, and, and this is in passing, people either pick it up or not, but the, the war boys call themselves camera-crazy war boys. You know, for obvious reasons. And even the word word mediocre is used in, in in a way that perhaps is not is not sort of typical, has other meaning. Uh, so when we go into any culture, if you look at an anthropological movie and you go into any culture, and you don't know what some of the rituals are of, of a culture that you're unfamiliar with, but you you do understand that the people in the film uh, know what everything means yeah. so i think we applied those sort of things and that's that's how i think we got we got there we, you notice probably uh, there's no modern day expletives in the movies if, if they use that it, it makes it too colloquial it makes it too 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 present uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and and so there's a dissonance between something that you're expecting people to sort of uh, you know, take themselves into some future dystopian world and yet they're using the language of the street today.
0: We talked a bit about the edit and the challenges for, for Margaret Sixel in, in, in crafting this. Um, Charlize says that the initial cut she saw was four hours. Um, the final film is two hours. That's a lot of footage that didn't make the final cut. Um, what, can you say any sequences or, or, or what the what the big chunks that came out of this film were and would you ever entertain we saw the, the chrome version. Would we ever, could we ever see a longer version of Fury Road? Well,
1: look, when you're making a film this, like this, you cannot afford to shoot scenes that you know won't be in the movie. So the version, I'm not sure it was four hours, but it, it, it couldn't be, uh, was, was basically extended shots, extended shots which were ultimately in the movie. There's, it's not as though we had to lift complete sequences or, or whatever. I, I've, I've experienced that before in, um, you know, in television sometimes, but I've never experienced it in, in a feature film because it's so hard, one, the footage to do it well, but to have to lift scenes, uh, in, in a way, you know, we always say, if you don't lift the problem in the writing, you have to lick it in the in the editing room. If the don't lick it in the editing room, then the audience has to lick it for you, and that's not their job. And and, and I, I it's true, you have to try to deal with it in the writing. So there were there were scenes, there were scenes that I thought were were important, and I like the way we shot them. And that this is what I meant by Margaret. She saw immediately which scene you, you, you could drop. And, and, and there was one for instance uh that really comes to mind and these are the sorts of things this is probably the biggest scene that we the, that we lost uh it'll give you an example but just to make it clear most of it was trimming and cutting existing shots okay so there was a scene where when max says to furiosa we should go back um and they kind of clasp hands. So these two mortal enemies, as it were, basically decide the only way we're going to survive in the wasteland is, is joint forces. Okay, that's the end. That's basically the end of the classic, classic end of the second act. What I, then, then we had, around there, a scene where the immortal Joe was having this sort of big rally with his, uh, with his uh, war boys. And they were, they were thumping and chanting, they were thumping their vehicles, and banging things together. And they were you know, basically like a political rally. And he was there angry and whipping them up. We had that scene. Then we had a scene where, where uh, and he was basically telling them all, go out across the wasteland and look for tracks. He was, so it was continuing the story. Then we had a scene where the war rig arrives up on top of the hill above above the the wasteland and and we see that max is there he pops up through the roof with his binoculars and he sees what's out there reconnoiters as it were he signals to furiosa you see the volvallini uh hanging off the vehicle like shotgun riders you see the motorbike pull up alongside and and, and, and the character played by uh, uh, girl Gale, Valkyrie, she's riding on the back of the motorbike, and they all look at each other, ready for the battle. Then you see the Morton Joe uh, singing to himself and um, and in repose until someone says, "Hey, is that the warrior?" Because in the background you see the warrior going by. Okay, now. Margaret said one day, she says I want to try something. And she lifted the two scenes I talked about, which was so much better. Because here I was expositing everything. Here I was. But it was the third act. It was the beginning of the third act. The, 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 The main reason why they went back is they couldn't have done anything else, both within the story. And we, as storytellers, if they kept on going, we needed more exposition. And we've just spent the first two accents positing. You have to sort of pay off in the third scene. So we knew everybody and we knew the circumstances and what's going back. So she said, We'll lose this, the, the rally, which which I was sort of a little bit upset about, you know, just because we shot it. I like how we shot it. And then we and we lost that scene off the top of the hill, the record to scene. So what it is now is that Max and Furiosa clasped hands, then Then you come to the Immortal Joe, who you know is out there, and he's singing to himself. He has a little staff. He's sitting down. Everyone's, you know, even the Dufara is sleeping in the sling of his vehicle. Everyone is completely opposed. And um, suddenly, hey, is that the war rig? And that's the beginning of the chase. Way better than it would have been. The, the, that's the biggest section we lost. So I,
0: I think I got the best of all possible worlds because I think it works so perfectly in the film. But I feel like I just watched that wonderful sequence with you describing it in such a vivid. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, okay. Anyway, that, look, everyone goes through that. I, I'm not. I
1: I, I, I was particularly. Uh, I think we're particularly lucky that you could lift that scene yeah. not only to the detriment of the film, but to the enhancement. In other words, we won much more than we lost. We lost very little.
0: What, what oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, so what happens after? Does Furiosa rule the Citadel? What happens to the wives? What do you, is Nux becoming, is he a hero to the rest of the war boys? What do you imagine, in your mind's eye, happens after Furiosa? Well, well there's two ways to go that, that uh, it's,
1: I've often thought about it, but, but, uh, but there's two ways to go. One is utopian. Uh, which is, which uh, is it, not an interesting story really, uh, I somehow imagined that the first thing she would do in line with that is go up and release the water so people can go down below. It wasn't withheld. It's a little, tea. there was, uh, what's the equivalent today, a, a, a sort of a, a new deal, you know, politically. Um, but, um, but, uh, in, in, following history and following storytelling, what tends to happen, and this is from Joseph Campbell, who is, is significant. He, he, what's significant about Joseph Campbell? It's not just his opinion. He basically made it his business to understand all of folklore, uh, uh, all, all of storytelling, whether it was religious texts or or, or or some some basic, uh, small stories in, in in a, in a, in a you know, very circumscribed uh, region, you know, there were always things in common. And he he basically... basically, Sorry, I'm wafting on now. The main thing I want to say is, Campbell said that that the usual story is that today's hero uh, becomes tomorrow's tyrant. The, the hero is the agent of change. Right. They basically the relinquish self-interest in order for some common good. Okay? So this is Campbell, not me. And he basically says, so what happens is you love what you've built or saved too much, and you become whole fast, you become the ortho- orthodoxy, you, you you develop the dogma, and basically then you have to protect it, and that tends to be the rhythm of these things. Um, I think it's probably, uh, I, I think it's probably uh, healthy. Uh, for instance, there's limited terms in, 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 in politics in most countries that, that have it, because you can see that you can see the opposite happening. And I'm not just talking about present day politics. You see it all through time. Sure. So in a way, I'm, I'm torn between two things. I. I believe that whatever motivated Furiosa to do this thing came from a really brave and, and, and courageous space. And I think that's presented in the movie. Uh, part of me would love it if she if she pushed the world to a more, you know, more equitable world, and I'm not saying to a utopia because the world has already been destroyed. The green place was more utopia, the place he aspired to was more utopia. But back in the in the citadel, she could also turn the other way. Even though the way I see the way that Charlie's played her, even though she was really tough, I don't see that happening. I think she's too smart to fall into that trap. She's already seen it happen with the Morton Joe. I believe he went through the same process. He was probably an heroic character in his own time. So anyway, a good question. I haven't really had to think or talk about it very much at all.
0: Yeah. Well, that's not, that's not the story we're going to see in the future, but if all aligns correctly, we are going to see an earlier story of Furiosa. Um, you know, the great news is that it sounds like it's closer to happening. Um, I'm, it's a little bittersweet because Charlize won't be playing Furiosa because you, you need a, a bit of a younger actress to tell the story you want to tell. Um, what, talk to me about what your, have you cast your Furiosa yet? Uh, no, it,
1: look, it's too early to talk about it. Uh, I'd love to talk about it, but
0: you know, I have always,
1: <laughs> I always have this 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 uh, slight, slight superstition. You don't want to give hostage to fortune by by, by basically talking uh, uh, talking about a film. Uh, you know, I, I remember I talked about Mad Max One uh, just before 9/11 as if it was going to happen <laughs> in a few weeks' time. It was we only a few weeks away, so it took uh, you know close. To, over a decade to, to get it made. So, if you don't mind, I won't talk about about until until it's actually concrete. Okay. Well, you know, I'm, I was meant to be shooting a film as we speak now, uh, and and of course with the pandemic, uh, you know, it's not like like everybody else. It's it's not a, a filming. So,
0: I, I am curious. If you'll indulge me, just I, I, this we even talked about five years ago. You had. You had two stories, it sounded like, that you had kind of ready to yeah. continue with, a, yeah. a, a Max story um, and the Furiosa story that we alluded to. Um, do you imagine, I mean, these movies are huge undertakings, that do you still have the itch to tell that, that Max story? Do, do, these, do, do these both exist in screenplay form, like ready to go when you're ready? Well, one, one is, exists as a screenplay form and one exists as
1: virtually a novel. Uh, because we wrote it, instead of, look, uh, writing a screenplay is, is in many ways much more dramatically rigorous than writing a, a novel. You can sort of, you can almost um, free associate in a novel to some right. degree. You don't have to pay as much mind to, to the dramatic architecture of the piece. And so we, Nico Luthuris and I basically freeform that. And we, we 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 got to that story, and but with Furiosa, we we, we got to a complete screenplay. This was done almost accidentally. Uh, one of the things i talked about had, you know, earlier the the strategies when you're creating a world. The other one was you have to you have to understand where each object, which each found object, uh, came from. Right. The, the the, the people making it had to make up their own little stories. Most of them I would not have heard. Where did, where did uh, for instance, the hospital bed pad that the Dufbach Warrior has in the, you know, in his double neck guitar, where did that come from? Right. How did he come to be in this world? Where, why is he wearing that sort of ones, onesie thing that's red? What, what's that around his face uh, that, that uh, you know, uh, we had to understand where that would happen. And the, uh, or at least the actors or the main person uh, working with that had to understand that. Right. And I think um, that's what we did with Furiosa. You know, how did she lose her arm? Why, what is the green place? Why, did she so, why is she just so desperate to get back? Those sorts of things with, which, with Max. Why is he so burnt out and alone at the beginning of the movie? Those are the sort of questions that we had tried to answer. So we wrote these as part of the Bible. Got it. And they exist. And, you know, we, we, uh, it, 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 it's, it's part of it. any real intention of making them, necessarily. Uh, they were just there for the actors and, and for us. Right. And
0: anyone who cared to, to look at them. Yeah. So it is, it is safe to say. So those those questions you're alluding to. If hopefully we get to see these stories, those answers are provided. We do learn a little bit more of Yarm, yeah, yes, yeah. how she escaped the green place, how she was taken from the green place, etc. That's the yeah, idea. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Is um, a couple more questions for you if, if you'll indulge me, and then I'll let you go, sir. You've been so generous with your time. Um, mm-hmm. Are you are you at all interested in in ha- in letting another filmmaker uh, take a crack at at this world that you so beautifully created. We're talking about all these streaming shows now. Could you imagine a Mad Max world set TV show that you either showrun or let someone else show run?
1: Look, uh, I uh, I can I can. We we back in the eighties we did quite a a bit of television and with with, with really good filmmakers uh, who've done feature films uh, though it was mainly what we used to call parish pump mainly for. Australia specifically, they were with no regard to them being seen overseas and uh, or outside of the country, and it was a very it, 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 it's a it's a great thing. Look, I have so it's something that I don't necessarily have the bandwidth to do it, but it's something I would really like to to do again. I mean, I have, you know, I think I think for a lot of reasons, the best writing as well as the filmmaking, but the best writing comes out of those writer's room where you get that sort of concatenation, I think the word is, of, of people together, all these forces coming together. And I think they interplay that you get, uh, the collective experience providing it, the, the collect- collective effort providing it's, it's well-managed can often synergistically throw up much more than one, you know, the creativity of one uh, individual. Right. Uh, and, it, and, 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 you know, I, for me, uh, there's so much brilliant work being done. But, you know, for me, the high watermark was uh, was Breaking Bad I, as one. I know that wasn't conceived necessarily as one piece, but if you look at the structure of the whole thing, I mean, and I think there was some mind behind that, uh, probably Vince, but you know, I, who was assiduous about it and collected the whole thing. So, I, you know, it's not something. Uh, it, 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 it's certainly something I've considered, but again, it's it's I've, I've got too much
0: to do at the moment. To, well, go, to, going back to your Joseph Campbell discussions, we, we I, I'm itching for fifty hours of a Breaking Bad like TV show of how a Morton Joe became a Morton Joe, as you said. Oh he, yes, he probably wasn't. He was maybe he was a nice, charming man once, and it he just was. Was I promise you, he,
1: he was he was someone admirable in my head, <laughs> and he becomes that class, classic Joseph Campbell thing. He became fast and. We
0: need people to, and, 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 and you know, anyway, <laughs> amazing. Well, this this is honestly, um, I, I don't know for me, and I think for a lot of people watching, this feels like getting a masterclass in, in filmmaking and and, and just um, shows you how tough it is, how inspiring it is to um, tackle important, uh, um, audacious pieces of work, and the fact that this film, um, exists is kind of a miracle <laughs> and you are yes, the key sorry. you are the key man to thank for it and i i'm so thankful for your time today george as, as you've always been generous with me and and i hope you take as much pride as you should in in creating this work
1: yes i really appreciate
0: that very much and
1: look great questions could you thank all of uh the, the the you know the, the the wonderful directors that have asked questions i i'm I know, you know, I don't know if you know the term t- teaching your grandmother how to suck
0: eggs. It's... <laughs> but I love it. I don't
1: know. Well, 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 I feel like when, when I'm answering those questions, it's teaching their grandmothers, or my, teaching my grandmother how to suck eggs. I think it used to come from some way of sucking, making, getting the shell, shell and sucking the yolk and everything out of the egg by well, a little hole. I don't know where it came from. Amazing. Well, as you, you can tell, feel like to... I feel like I'm teaching them stuff they already know too well because it's in all their
0: work yeah well they they, they you've got a, a lot of fans out there both as just the common folk out there and the greatest filmmakers revere you and i, and I do want to just say I, this, if you'll indulge me on a very um you know personal note um i just want to dedicate this conversation um i, I told you earlier my, my dad recently passed away and I, I got a lot from my dad including a, a real love of cinema and um it's, uh, it's meaningful for me. You're kind of the first thing I've done since he's passed. So I, I think he'd be happy that I'm, I'm, I'm doing something that he would love to. So, so this is for my dad. What was his name, Josh? His, his name was uh, Larry Horowitz. And he, uh, he, up until the end, could quote any, uh, any movie and, and movie cast that he, had, uh, that he had ever seen. So hopefully some, something of him is still in me. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused.